I remember when I was little, I became obsessed with efficiency, okay? I became obsessed with taking the least amount of steps to get everything done. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss is a household name in the self-help world, and he has a long list of things that he does. Why? Because, wow, that guy's productive. This guy does it all, okay? He's an entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's an author. He's a podcaster. He's a lifestyle guru and much, much more. He has set a Guinness World Record. He speaks like a bunch of languages. He does acro yoga. He does breakdancing. It's like, okay, dude, slow down. You know, he's one of those. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa, slow down. He's sort of the go-to guy for people looking for meaningful, practical, life-changing tips and hacks. Because it's one thing to give a tip or a hack that's useful but sort of impractical. It takes a level of mastery to figure out or distinguish what is a truly life-changing hack. So I'm very excited to dig in to that with him today. He's written five number one New York Times best-selling books, including The 4-Hour Workweek, Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers, Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, and more. He has a podcast. The Tim Ferriss Show focuses on what we can learn from people who are at the top of their game. Definitely go listen to that. Definitely go read the books. I could go on for hours, but the last honorable mention is he founded the SciSafe Foundation, which is a foundation that focuses on cutting-edge technology and research. He's, I think, a really special person because I feel like he is able to discuss productivity in a way that feels human. It's not hustle culture. It's not, oh, you got to do the most and and it needs to be the most shiny thing and it needs to be Instagrammable. He's all about finding the ways that you can optimize your performance, not not only for success, but also for well-being and for fulfillment. And so I'm really excited to be talking to him today. We will link the SciSay Foundation down below if you want to check it out. Also, a quick disclaimer, we do discuss mental health struggles, depression, suicide. If that's a sensitive topic for you, maybe don't listen to this one. Tim Ferriss. Let's bring him in. This episode is presented by Haagen-Dazs. It's love at first bite with the new Haagen-Dazs Dulce de Leche Bar. Featuring rich caramel dulce de leche ice cream, swirled with thick, milky dulce de leche ribbons and dipped in milk chocolate. Indulgent? Yes. The perfect way to treat yourself? Absolutely. Find at retailers nationwide. That's DOS. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Dating can be exhausting. Even just getting to the dating stage is a little bit overwhelming. You know, I'm not somebody who loves casually dating. I like to be in a relationship. Finding somebody you're attracted to is challenging enough, but then making sure that you're compatible is a whole other challenge. Well, Bumble is helping take some of the pressure off. Now you can make the first move or not. It's entirely up to you. Thanks to Bumble's new feature, Opening Moves. It's a simple way to start conversations. Just choose a question and let your matches reply to kick off the chat. Try Opening Moves on the new Bumble. Download Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Prime. Whether it's a hobby, a side hustle, or simply your favorite pastime, Amazon Prime doesn't just help facilitate your passions. It helps you find new ones as well. I'm always going through phases with hobbies. Sometimes I go through a phase where I love sewing. Sometimes I go through a phase where I like taking cool photos. Sometimes I have a phase where I'm really into watercoloring. Whenever I have a good idea, I hop on Amazon and order all of the equipment that I need, and it shows up so fast so I can just jump into my new hobby while the passion is still alive. Whatever you're into or getting into, you can find it on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Your whole thing is 
this is the most productive man in the world. Oh, Lordy. God <laughs> you know save what I mean? Us. Which is, <laughs> I mean, what a, what a stressful title. Burden. But I have to, I, I'm, I'm curious if this started in childhood for you. Like, is this something that has followed you your whole life? Or did that become a part of your life later? I think a lot of it started early in the sense that from a really early age, I've always been a systems person. So I got fired from my first job. I was a cleaner at an ice cream parlor called Snowflake, no longer exists on Long Island. And I figured out how to make the cleaning much more efficient, but that left me with a lot of extra time on my shift. And I just sat around reading magazines, which was not ideal for the boss, I suppose. So I got fired. (laughs) But that interest in finding elegant solutions, looking for fewer moving pieces. I think that started really early. It's Mm -hmm. just a fascination for me. And that's part of figuring out how things work. And my mom was very good at fostering that creativity. So if I expressed any interest towards anything, marine biology, drumming, whatever it might be, then she would try to point me in a more focused way in that direction. And then learning is just figuring out how things work. So Mm -hmm. fundamentally, I think that a lot of people have that interest. I might have a little more OCD on board, mm-hmm. but it's not automatically stressful. I think productivity can be stressful. I think practical productivity that allows you to have some endurance mm-hmm. is, should reduce stress. But if you're trying to pack as much as you can into every minute, then of course you're going to be a complete head case. Do you remember your very first? Like even before the ice cream shop, your very first sort of system. I'm actually trying to think of mine too because I've always had that sort of brain mm-hmm. where I'm always trying to do things in the least amount of time. Yeah. Where it's like, how can I take the least amount of steps in yeah. my day? But that's sort of how my brain, that's how it started for me. But being productive was like, I want to do a straight line and get everything I need to get done, yeah. done on the way. And, and by the way, productivity is just getting done what you want to get done. Totally. That's all it is. Yeah. That's all it is. And you can you can make it you can dress it up and put it in a tuxedo and say, well, it's about maximizing your per hour output or whatever. And yeah. you can you can you can find these other definitions, but really it's just figuring out the straightest line from where you are to getting done what you want to get done. And so <laughs> I don't know if this counts as a system. It seems like a very generous term for it, but I remember being very small, maybe three years old Mm -hmm. and i've never talked about this that's for sure i don't lead i don't lead with my vroom vroom so there's this car it was like a little (laughs) kid's car that i would put my knee on Mm -hmm. and then push kind of like a kind of like a skateboard almost like a skateboard is the way i used it for better speed and there was this one step in the house that dropped down into this living room and I would clear things out of the way so that I could get maximum speed to fly off this thing, <laughs> which didn't always turn out super well. But yeah. that's what I was going for. What I wanted at the time was just max speed. And for me, this was like the Olympic ski long of jump. Of course. Right? But I'm on my vroom vroom. So probably if I had to strain to think of a first memory, that's the one. That's so good. I, I mean, do you feel like productivity is boiled down to speed? speed in a way like do you think it's all about speed no i actually think that that's where people screw up and i should say also i'm not like the paragon of ultimate productivity in the sense that my trick my trick if anything is really basic and that is that effectiveness meaning what you do is more important than efficiency how you do it Another way to put it, whether you're trying to learn languages quickly or you're trying to build a business, like what you do is more important than how you do something because you can follow the herd, you can bend to the whim of the crowd, you can end up imitating even people who are close and good at what they do, who happen to be in your peer group or cohort. You're not thinking for yourself. You end up getting really good at things that aren't actually that important. They're not going to move the needle as much as other things. So if you choose the right thing to do, then even if you do a B minus job, that will be ultimately more impactful than doing an A plus job with something that is two levels down in importance. Mm. And that can be applied everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Like I'm curious how 
like how do you make that choice? Yeah. In in someone's mind, how should they build the tier list of like, okay, what do I need to learn how to do? Is it like the most important is what's going to be used the most often? Or like, mm. you know, like what what does that look like? Yeah, there are a number of different ways to approach it. An easy way to remember at least how I tend to approach it is with this framework, which was in the first book, the four hour work week, D-E-A-L, which is define, eliminate, automate, and then liberate. We can run through this real quick. So define or definition is the most important. That's just really clearly defining what you are trying to accomplish. And there are different tools you can use for that. But definition is number one. Mm -hmm. Where is your target? Where is the center of that target? Mm -hmm. Can you quantify any of it? Doesn't need to be quantified, but that is helpful. The second piece, which is most neglected, is elimination. How much can you stop doing? How much can you remove? How many steps can you put to the side, even temporarily, right? So that you're majoring in the major things and not in the minor things, right? Because mm -hmm. there are very few critical things and there are a lot of trivial things. Mm -hmm. And in the quest for quote-unquote productivity, people tend to try to do a lot and or do more and more. Uh, I think that is often a fool's errand. When you're young, I should say, and when I was young, you have to throw a lot against the wall in the beginning mm -hmm. to just figure out what you're good at mm -hmm. and what you like and what gives you energy instead of drains energy. And it's going to be different for different people. So you have definition, then elimination, getting rid of as much as possible, then automation. And you can use tools for that. You can use systems for that. Mm -hmm. Figuring out rules and kind of policies to defend yourself from your lesser self. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, you have liberation, which is taking advantage of different resources once you've liberated them, like time, right? Because you have money, which is renewable, so you mm -hmm. can afford to spend that, and then you can regain it later in some ways. Time is a different thing. Attention is a different thing. Energy, also somewhat of a different thing. So figuring out how to use these currencies best once you, once you liberate more of them. Mm -hmm. And that sounds super abstract, but you can apply that to any skill you want to learn. You could apply that to building a business. And what you define and then what you eliminate, is going to be super personal. So mm -hmm. for instance, I get asked all the time about writing books. Should I write a book? How do I make my book a bestseller? That's usually where people start. Mm -hmm. How do I make my book a bestseller? I think I want to write a book. I'm like, do you now? Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Why do Another you... <laughs> one of my worst nightmares. <laughs> no, like, do you, why do you want to write a book? And asking five whys, basically, I mean, this is an exercise a lot of people use, but well, I really want to share this teaching with the world, this, that, and the other thing. Okay, why? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sick of my job and I would love to do speaking engagements. Okay, interesting. Why? Because I want to make an extra $250,000 a year and mm -hmm. that would solve my problems. Okay, why do you believe that? And then you start drilling down and maybe at the end of the day you realize, actually, when we do the math, you're fucking fine you don't need to write a book yeah and even if you were to want to get to that dollar amount this is not the most effective way to do it going through that type of process which again is just asking better questions you can then pick the target and the point i want to yeah. make here is like picking the target or picking the game you want to play is more important than winning the game whatever game because if you're not aware like beyond shelter and food and whatever we're all playing different games we're opting into different games maybe i'm playing the podcast game or the book game or the angel investing game or fill in the blank mm -hmm. and step number one is to figure out what games you're playing now and then to be really deliberate about what you choose to play it picking the right game is more important than being good at whatever game you happen to land in mm -hmm. and you can figure it out pretty quickly i do feel like a lot of people choose the game for the wrong reason mm -hmm. because like it's so easy to see a sparkly game and be like i'm gonna go and do that one mm -hmm. instead of you know yeah going and doing what you're maybe naturally good at naturally gonna succeed at maybe like it, it's a new way of thinking for me to be like what is the end goal and if it's like a financial end goal you just need to get there so it's like what you do to get there doesn't need to be this sparkly thing, I guess. It, you sure. know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't need to be sparkly. And part of what uh, strikes me as very interesting about you is I think you've been very good at taking steps back to look at what game you're playing. 
in a way that is very beyond your years. And that's Thank been you. impressive to me. So I think you're you're very good at this. I don't know why, but you seem to be good at like pausing and stepping back. Maybe it's just because you flame out and burn out and you're like, I need to st- <laughs> take a step back. Yeah. It could be part of it. Well, it, it is, I think it actually is because I almost feel like I'm a very intuitive person. So everything I do is very intuitive and I can feel immediately when I'm playing the wrong game that it's not working. And it's not even like I can do it anymore. Like my brain shuts off and I go full depression immediately if I'm playing the wrong game. Yeah. It's sort of like my body telling me it's miraculous in a way. Like it's something I'm like, I'm sort of perplexed by, even though it happens to me. Yeah. Well, if I could, and this, this is just speculation on my part, but I would say that, well, the first part isn't speculation. The first part is language is relatively new. Spreadsheets and pro and con lists on the scale of human evolution, pretty brand new. Yeah. And then we have millions of years of evolution and other means of knowing or evaluating our environment and things happening in our environment that we have trained ourselves, I think, by and large, to mute or ignore, Mm -hmm. right? We've come to overvalue the highly analytical, explicit numbers on a spreadsheet approach to thing. Uh, to to things and problem solving, whereas it seems like part of what you're doing is just using all these other means of sensing that are harder to put words into. Totally. And I have, I mean, since I was very young, uh, had challenges with depressive episodes. I I think I've become much smarter about how I approach those, and they become less and less frequent. We could talk about why that's the case. Me too. Far less frequent. In some cases, though, like depression can, and I'll, I'll make this personal because I don't want to mm-hmm. project all over you, <laughs> but I just say sometimes when I've been like, oh, I'm feeling depressed, it's like, no, you're getting a signal and your energy has dropped. Yeah. That's not automatically the same as this constellation of symptoms that we would call psychiatric depression. Yep. Completely. Right? And those signals are easy to mix up. But oftentimes it's like, no, this is, this is an energy out activity and your body is making you pay attention to that yep. as opposed to an energy inactivity, which is how I choose a lot of what I do, which comes back to like, okay, well, how do you choose the target? I'll give people just a, if it's helpful for folks, mm-hmm. how I choose, say the few big yeses. Yes. I was about to ask this. Because in a in a world of infinite distraction and a million shiny objects and mm. phones that force feed you temptation at all times. And I remember I interviewed uh, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs at one point. He sadly passed away a few years ago, but he said one of the key skills is being able to distinguish between, let me get this right, an opportunity to be seized or a temptation to be resisted. And I think that skill is going to be increasingly important. It's going to become very obvious this year with mm-hmm. AI and many of the tools that are going to be used to inflict a fire hose mm-hmm. of temptation on everyone, including uh, the two of us. Oh, yeah. Here. So how do I try to sift through that? Part of it is if you have a list of, let's just say, five things you might want to do, and I'm in a transition period for myself right now where I'm thinking about new things. 10th anniversary of my podcast is coming up mm-hmm. in April. So I'm like, oh, yeah, let me use this as an opportunity to pause and think about what next chapters might look like. And there are a few ways that I look at my list of possible candidates and start to filter. Number one is how do I succeed even if I fail? Or can I succeed even if I fail with these? What I mean by that is if I try this project and by any external measurement it fails, whether that's books sold, views, Mm -hmm. subscribers, revenue, whatever, if it fails – Will I develop skills and relationships or deepen relationships and develop skills that will transfer to other things? Yes. If so, that's not a failure. Like you can still have a very meaningful partial win, even if externally it's a total failure. If any of those candidates don't check that box, they're out. Like that has to be a prereq because then you snowball your way into long-term success. It has never failed me. I've never seen that fail when it's done really methodically over time. You need endurance for that, which comes to the next point, which is like energy in, energy out. Mm -hmm. 
And by the way, if you're not really excited about something, it's not quite the right word. And I know you've talked about this, uh, you know, passion and these words are kind of clumsy labels that we try to apply to what I think fundamentally is like energy and energy out. Mm -hmm. If language learning for me is energy in and somebody else wants to compete in that, let's just say money, <laughs> money was big in the language learning game, mm -hmm. which it isn't, but, <laughs> and they're like, okay, I want to do that because five other people I respect are doing it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this exploding opportunity, like AI or web three, a couple of years ago. Okay, fine. We're going to chase that. Yeah. If it's energy out for you and it's energy in for me, I'm going to win. Yep. There's just no way around yep. it. Assuming I have like the basic skills. So choose a game you can win, right? So there's the, will this help me snowball into success long-term? Like will the skills and relationships transfer potentially to other things or persist after this, even if it fails or succeeds? And then beyond that, it's kind of doing an 80-20 analysis of what you're trying to do in your life, right? With whether it's finance, personal stuff, it's like, all right, let's rank order your life and break it down in some way where it's you could do this a million different ways but it's like all right finances physical health mental mm -hmm. health that that like which levers are you trying to pull okay if you've checked the the first two boxes then you check on the third like is this addressing say if you rank each of those on one to five mm -hmm. anything that's a three or less you gotta you probably should deal with mm -hmm. okay then you choose the overlap and that's what you go for and you can fuck – sorry, am I allowed to curse? Oh, my God, yeah. yes. So you can fuck that up every which way from Sunday. I'm from Long Island, so I curse a lot. If you go through that process and you choose the right target, mm -hmm. you can have off days. You can have off weeks. You can have multiple days in a row where you think to yourself, what in the hell did I get done today? I don't think anything. I was looking at my <laughs> yeah. computer a lot, but I don't think I actually did anything. <laughs> but as long as you have the right target – and you get a little bit done week by week, I mean, you really can produce some some miracles from the mm -hmm. outside looking in. But it's that front-loading, that thought process in the beginning that really makes the difference. Because if people looked at me from day-to-day, week-to-week basis, and if I had some journalists or various folks pitch me on like shadowing me for a day or a week, and I'm like, no way, because yeah. it's going to look terrible. Like I'm going to look so quote unquote unproductive yep. because there's a lot of empty space. There's a lot of kind of feeling lost or being unsure of next steps. And there are ways to improve that. I'm not totally terrible. But as long as I've taken my time in the beginning to do that type of deconstruction of things and assessment of things, if I have the right target, those off days don't matter. Every time I'm having like an off day or even an off week, well, actually, in the beginning, when that, when that, you know, I first started working, and when I'd have these these off periods, I would feel horrific. I'd be like, "This is, I'm wasting my time. I'm not getting anything done." And now I I lean into it because I've realized that those periods are very productive because you're you're doing work in your subconscious. I feel like sometimes the the off day, the off week, can be productive. Do you agree with that to an extent? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, busyness is often laziness in disguise in the sense mm. that you're not willing to sit with those spaces. So you choose something that's easy. You choose something that's sexy. You choose something that's shiny because it's right in front of you and it's easy to do. Yeah. And then guess what? Then you end up with five kind of cool things that you're not particularly good at that drain you and that is your schedule and that target that you chose so carefully in the beginning just disappears. Although usually if you go through the trouble of choosing it, it's, it's, it doesn't disappear quite as easily. Yeah. And those, those empty spaces are important. I like to accomplish and have some end product to show for myself at the end of the day or the week as much as the next person. And that is important for positive reinforcement. But if you look at the best scientists I've ever interacted with, a lot of the best creatives, mm -hmm. there's a lot of negative space. And they actually deliberately create that for themselves. Yep. And my feeling is, and this isn't across the board, there are always exceptions, but like if you feel like you are rushing, you are rushing almost certainly in the wrong direction. If you feel like you're rushing, you're going the wrong direction. Because if you've chosen something that you're somehow uniquely or close to uniquely well positioned to do, 
right? Mm -hmm. Because it's energy in. You're building these skills and relationships. Since it's energy in, you're going to have some endurance, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You don't need to rush. Yeah. Right? Because the window of opportunity isn't going to close really quickly. If, however, and I've seen this with a lot of folks, you're chasing some specter of a fast disappearing opportunity because whatever the latest thing is, is what you're sprinting towards. Right. You're going to have to rush or you're going to feel like you have to rush. And chances are 10 people can do it just as well, if not better, or maybe there are 100 people or 1,000 people and you've chosen the wrong game. That is yeah. a bad game. And so for me, an indicator that I'm probably yeah, running in the wrong direction with my hair on fire is if I feel rushed, mm -hmm. I probably should take some time to think about what target I'm aiming for. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. When you're feeling down, sometimes it's good to be alone. But talking can also be a big help. Keeping everything bottled up is not great for your health. It would cause me a lot of stress and anxiety. It's almost like, I use this metaphor a lot, but it's almost like carrying a backpack around. And when you have stuff bottled up, it gets added to the backpack. And when you talk about it, you get to take it out of the backpack. Now the backpack's a little bit lighter. Once I got older and I learned how to communicate, I never stopped because I like having an empty backpack. It just feels better and my quality of life is better. When you need to talk and need a safe space, I highly recommend therapy. It's a great way to work through whatever's bothering you in a judgment-free place. There's something really special about having a resource to talk to that is not involved in your life on a personal level. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash anything today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash anything. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. Dating can be exhausting. Even just getting to the dating stage is a little bit overwhelming. You know, I'm not somebody who loves casually dating. I like to be in a relationship. Finding somebody you're attracted to is challenging enough, but then making sure that you're compatible is a whole other challenge. Well. Bumble is helping take some of the pressure off. Now you can make the first move or not. It's entirely up to you. Thanks to Bumble's new feature, Opening Moves. It's a simple way to start conversations. Just choose a question and let your matches reply to kick off the chat. Try Opening Moves on the new Bumble. Download Bumble now. When did writing a book become a target for you and why? After college, my senior thesis almost killed me. It really was a brutal experience. And I, I went to Princeton where a senior thesis is a requirement. And it's a huge part of your four-year departmental, or I should say your departmental average. is a huge piece of it. So it's very high pressure. I don't know how long mine was, 170 pages or something. I mean, by far and away the longest thing I'd ever written. Yeah. And it just absolutely crushed me. I, I, <laughs> I didn't know how to handle something of that scope. It was very complicated. Ugh. And after I was done with it, which took way longer than I expected, I made this vow to myself that I would never write anything longer than an email ever again. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I get it. I I'm get done. That. Yeah. I'm done. And the way the first book came about is actually how I'm thinking about exploring my next chapters a bit is... Mm -hmm. uh, teaching a class. So I had this professor at Princeton. I've been really part lucky, part by design, but a lot of luck in terms of having some teachers who've had huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. And Ed Shao, Z-S-C-H-A-U, mm -hmm. was teaching this class called high-tech entrepreneurship. And it was based on the Harvard case study method where they would use these real case studies of, say, business X has this problem or this goal. What should they do? Here are all the facts. Pause. And then the students have to figure out what they would do. Yep. And then the second half is here's what the company did. And then he would bring in the CEOs or the former CEOs of these companies to, ex to explore their decisions. It's a great Such class. A good class. It's a yeah, great class. Great. So I, I started giving these lectures and I, I think I guess lectured in this class from 2003 to 2013 or something. And 
every class I asked for feedback from students. Like, what do you like? Favorite piece? How could it improve? Da, 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 da. Yep. So I always ask for that kind of feedback. I do this all the time, by yep. the way, with everything. And um, sometimes Princeton kids can be snobby pricks. And one <laughs> kid, and this is one guy put in, uh, I don't understand why you're teaching this class to like 30 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? And it was not intended to be a serious recommendation. It was just a dickish response. Yeah. But that stuck in my head, and I was like, eh, I don't want to write a book. And then I reached out to a friend, this is years later, and around 2004, mm -hmm. who was an author. And I, I basically showed him my notes from the class. And I was like, you know, I've been thinking about what I'm going to do next. I don't think I want to write a book, but what do you think of this? And he replied with, you should definitely do it. And I had some conversations. I got turned down by a bunch of folks. Uh, ended up finding a guy who was a superstar editor who had just become an agent. So he was new to that game, the agenting game. Mm -hmm. I was new to the writing game. We ended up really hitting it off. And we signed. The book got turned down by 27, 29, somewhere in that range. Publishers got turned down by everybody. And then somebody bought it, and then I had to write it. So that's how it happened. But it was not... I, it was not as though I had this burning desire to write a book. Interesting. It was. It was one of these things, and I think... Things that I have done that have been most successful, per se, have been the things that I just cannot get out of my head. Like, I have to I have to do them, which is what I say to people when they're like, ah, maybe I'll write a book. I'm like, you should only write a book if, like, you have to write a book. Yes. It's almost like it has to, like, haunt you. It has to haunt you. And you almost have to, like, resent it. In, yeah. Not, like, in a weird way where you're like, oh, like, leave me alone. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, want to yeah. do that. It's almost like it starts like that. Yeah. Sometimes, not always, but I've noticed with me too, like even with YouTube, it was like, I had to do it. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I was like, oh, it's not going to do well. Like I don't eat whatever. Yeah. You just, you feel, you know, the muse keeps like tapping you on the forehead long enough. And you're like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake. Okay, yeah. Fine. What would be your advice, I guess, to somebody who is so obsessed with productivity and like, you know, in, in success and this, this and that, but they're miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. A lot of things are fundamentally driven by a desire to improve our lives, but we can get distracted by these like secondary metrics. So I'll give you a, a very simple example, investing. So you have, you're saving a certain amount of money mm -hmm. and you have that money to invest. Why are you investing? People say, well, I'm investing to grow my money. Okay, you're investing to grow your money. Why are you? Why are you, do you want to grow your money? Well, mm -hmm. because then I'll have this money and I'll have retirement and then, da, da, okay. Why do you want retirement? Well, because I want security. Okay, what is security? What is that feeling that you're going for? Well, it's ultimately for a lot of people feeling more peace of mind mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. But what do they do? They decide to put it in the latest shitcoin, crypto, whatever, oh, that is bouncing yeah. all over the place, and they're oh, stressed no. out of their minds. Yeah. And I'm like, if if you get distracted by the secondary metric of like compounded annual growth rate, you're going to make bad decisions. Yep. You have to keep the fundamental underlying driver in mind. Right. So I would say that for people who are miserable in the – quest for productivity often it's because they forget about like the layer one now i'm using crypto terms but <laughs> meaning the fundamental layer they forget about the fundamental layer driver like the primary driver they should pay attention to and they're getting distracted by metrics that are higher up mm -hmm. that are vanity metrics or they're just distracting metrics mm -hmm. right and not to beat this drum too hard but it's like Modern tech platforms are not designed to maximize your well-being. Oh, just to oh. be very clear. Oh no, they're not. <laughs> and we can come back to that. But I will say that for people who are miserable with productivity, I would say generally it's because they probably have a target that is energy out instead of energy in. Yep. Or they have not taken the time to define a target, which yep. is even worse. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's the belief that productivity means more is more. Right. And for me, I'll add one more thing to that. But for me, I'm always looking for, if you look at any of my books, right, one of the commonalities is searching for something that is called the minimum effective dose. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to get a suntan? Going out in Australia, laying on the beach as pale as someone like me for like three hours straight, probably not the right way to start. Yeah. Right? Like you want the minimum effective dose. If you're using medication, right, especially with things that are a little dicey like Tylenol, acetaminophen, mm-hmm. uh, which can have incredible uh, liver toxicity if you take too much. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not that much at all. You're looking for the least you can take mm-hmm. to produce the desired effect. Yep. That's how I think about productivity. I'm trying to do, and there was a very famous, I'm blanking on his name, track athlete who had many athletes with world records. And he said, the goal is to do the least necessary, not the most possible. And that is a fun puzzle for me to try to solve. Mm-hmm. And I use the word elegance very deliberately. I mentioned it earlier. It's like the fewest pieces in the least dose to get what I want. Mm-hmm. Because when you aim for that, you get fewer side effects, just like with drugs. And the last thing I would say is a lot of folks who are striving to be hyperproductive and they're really stressed out, it's because they have chosen a really crowded, what you might call red ocean. Yeah. A brutally competitive, fast-changing game. Totally. Aim to be a category of one. Choose yeah. an uncrowded game or create a new game for yourself where you can be the one and the only. Ideally. Mm-hmm. Right? And part of the reason I'm looking for what my new experiments might be is that when I started, for instance, the podcast in 2014, there were already podcasts. So there was a proof of concept, yep. but it was not mainstream yeah. in any capacity. And it was very uncrowded. There was a lot of room mm-hmm. to be differentiated. Mm-hmm. It is very hard now. I feel that. Super hard. It's so hard. It's very challenging. Yeah. And and it's it's not just because it's crowded. Uh, it's because within that crowd, there are a lot of really good people. Yes. Incredibly good. Totally. And uh, for me, that's that's like, to use the casino analogy, I've been playing single deck blackjack. And then they're like, well, we're actually going to play with three decks. And it's like, ooh, that makes counting cards a lot harder. Yep. And then they're like, you know what? Mr. Ferris, stay exactly where you are. And they move the tables. And now the roulette <laughs> yeah. now the roulette is in front of me. And I'm like, I don't want to play this game. Yeah. Not from a, a purely competitive perspective. Because like you have to be careful about competition. I think it can make you very unhappy. But mm-hmm. for me to feel energy in, I want to feel like I am doing something that I am uniquely suited to do. Yes. Right? So I'd say that if I were going to be a productivity doctor and diagnose the most likely causes of that mm-hmm. misery would be the few things I just mentioned. We're in a real like hustle culture of it all to use the yeah. lifestyle. Hustle. I know I used Bring that in the beginning. Back to that. No, but I mean people like the hustle culture of it all where it's like all about the like looking productive. Like you know, that's what it's all about. I think it can get very dangerous. Dangerous, very unhealthy. I'm also curious Sort of speaking of social media, like, I feel like one of my greatest challenges when it comes to focus is social media addiction. Yeah. Because a lot of us now have to use social media in one way or another for our job. Like, whether you have a bakery Mm -hmm. or you are, you know, you're the bakery and you're like, whatever it is. It's like, if I didn't post on social media... I would delete the apps to not be addicted anymore, but I can't. So I, well, but let me, also, let me, would let me, I? Let, let me push back on that. This, this might be helpful. Because I'm so addicted Let's to my push phone. Back. <clears throat> yeah. I don't have any social media apps on my phone. I'm not oh. saying that is optimal if your goal is to grow your following. Right. Because the platforms and the algorithms dictate what you will be rewarded for as an obedient mm-hmm. little little puppy, yes. you know, begging at the heels of whatever platform you happen to be on. Yeah. Uh, that sounds a little little harsh, but you get the idea. Oh, I know it's Like real. the rules of the games, like how confident can you feel in your choice of game when the rules of the game constantly change? Mm. No wonder you're stressed out. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and what I would say, though, is like, I'm making up this example, but like some of the top contemporary artists in the world, you know, visual artists, are they posting every day? I guess probably not a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So I would say you might be right. You can't stop. But 
that seems like a hypothesis worth testing where you could say, okay, I'm going to do two weeks, no social. Yeah. Now to do that though, you have to decide how you're going to evaluate whether you need to or don't need to. For mm -hmm. that, you would need other metrics. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think it gets challenging for folks if they, for instance, have sponsored posts on social mm -hmm. and that is their metric, mm -hmm. as an example, mm -hmm. or in stories or whatever it might be, then yes, you are captive to the platform. But if you have other products, if you have coffee, yep. you can assess your progress, what you need to do or don't need to do by something other than the metrics the platform gives you. And this is just a long way of saying you can test it. You can test all of these things. They are not permanent decisions. Right. Right. Absolutely. So I know. Uh, I think and, and, I'll, and I'll add one thing to that, which is sometimes the pain isn't acute enough. So, mm -hmm. you know, I listened to your episode from 2021, mm -hmm. Rock Bottom. And, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but you said something which I've thought a lot myself. If something is just, if something's mediocre, or a little bit painful and you can tolerate it for a long time, that is oftentimes a, a more precarious situation than really acute, devastating pain because the latter forces you often to do something. Yes. Sometimes you need to manufacture that though. Yes. Right? So for instance, right now you're like, oh, I'd love to, but I can't, I can't, I'm not sure. But it's like, okay, let's say you continue doing exactly what you're doing. What does your life look like? mental health, physical health, friendships, finances, this, this, this. If you look out three years, all right, five years. Mm -hmm. Okay, 10 years. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. fine. But usually if someone is like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure. Ah, it's like pebble in the shoe that yep. right now is a little irritating, but yep. on a hundred mile march, like you're going to tear your feet to pieces. Yep. And so I do that type of telescoping out a lot. I'm like, okay. If I continue to do this as I am, what are the costs of inaction? Because I think often folks will look at, and this is a lot of the four-hour work week, honestly, mm -hmm. is like breaking down risk and thinking about risk differently. Yes. Right. So like, let's just say the risk of taking two weeks without doing any social posts mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. And we think about the risks of that action. That's a new thing. Mm-hmm. But we don't compare it to something because when something is is we say, ah, oh, it's risky. The follow up we should always ask is compared to what? Yeah. Compared to what? And in this case, the compared to what is doing the same thing for the next two, three, five years. Mm -hmm. And when you sit down, you evaluate that and you telescope out. Sometimes you're like, oh shit! Like doing no social for two weeks is extremely low risk. Yeah. Because the potential payoff is so high. Totally. So why not? The past two weeks, for some reason, I've been horrific with it. Oh, it's been terrible. And and I feel terrible. Like I do. I feel yeah. bad. I'm anxious. I'm like dissociated a little bit. Yeah. Weirdly, for some reason, when I'm on social media too much, I have like negative existential crises like over and over. Like it makes me weirdly existential in a bad way. We're in no way evolved to thrive in these secondary digital environments no we, we <laughs> no. you know how long has it taken even a small percentage of the population to get accustomed to lactose i mean it's, yeah. it's like these tools are brand new yeah, yeah. and i'll tell you a quick anecdote which is uh, i've spent i travel a lot i, I mean i really enjoy traveling mm -hmm. and spent some time in ethiopia in the north in the tigray area mm -hmm. and was going from spot to spot and had this driver it was a group and by and large people seemed really happy mm -hmm. in the rural areas and then we we came across this one village where people seemed pretty surly and i was like that's weird yeah why is that and he goes oh it's because they got satellite tv and i was like what what do you mean and he goes well now they can watch the Kardashians and they can watch all these people with fancy cars and fancy yes. lives. Wow. And now they've concluded their lives suck. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist. Wow. And if you take that and you basically put 5 million horsepower into it, you have social media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't think social media is all bad, but there's enough. It's very, you, you, 
in my experience, it's it's increasingly difficult, especially with the kind of TikTokification and competition that we've seen across platforms, to selectively engage with social media and just peel out the positive. I it know. is very hard because you're no longer limited to accounts that you follow. You get served anything that will captivate your attention, yep. which can then be monetized. Yeah, that's. I feel like that switch is when it got harder to have boundaries with it. You know, in, I mean, I don't have TikTok, which is nice. Yeah, but I do kind of like sometimes have have a little FOMO. Like, actually, I didn't for a long time, and then recently, I was like, "This is such a, this is the platform," and I'm not there. And it's not that I was like, "Oh, I miss watching it," but it was like. I want to be present there. And I had this like feeling that I hadn't had, you know, I hadn't had in a long time. And I was like, why am I feeling that? So that's something I'm analyzing right now. Why am I feeling that? That's where something like the five whys, it doesn't have to be exactly five, but it's just like sit down with a cup of coffee and journal and just. No, I'm actually going to do that. Just because do that. It takes, takes 10 minutes. I'm it's, curious. It's, what... it's amazing how much you can get out of like 10 to 15 minutes of structured journaling. It, it's so, it can be so fast. So like the five whys yeah. or morning pages. I'm a huge fan of morning pages by uh, Julia Cameron who mm -hmm. wrote The Artist's Way. It's just like you wake up, three pages of writing out whatever's in your monkey mind. Yep. Bitch and moan, complain. It's not writing. You're not going to show anybody. Just like get it out of your head so you yep. can move on with your day. Yep. Trap it on paper. Mm -hmm. And it's the simplest thing ever. This episode is brought to you by Adidas. Whether you're a professional athlete or lacing up a pair of sneakers for the first time, everyone feels pressure. Okay, for me, it started when I was a young tween. There were a lot of pressures that I experienced as a cheerleader, not only from coaches, but also from within. You want to be good because you're like, if I'm not, then what am I doing with all this time that I'm dedicating to this thing? The only problem was, even though I did well under the pressure, the pressure still made me miserable and it made me anxious. But it wasn't until I got older that I realized that sports should be where you escape pressure, not feel it. For me now, it's less about perfection and being the best, and it's more about doing what feels good and what makes me happy. With the right mindset, you can beat anything, including pressure. You got this. Visit adidas.com slash you got this to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Imagine you find something that you love. Maybe you see your friend wearing a cool t-shirt and you're like, oh, I want that. And then they give you the website and you go onto it and it just doesn't feel quite right. That doesn't make you want to buy that t-shirt. A good website is crucial when it comes to selling your product or a brand. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. It's okay if you don't know the first thing about design. You can choose from professionally curated layouts with the Squarespace blueprint. Squarespace even has AI that can help you kickstart or update your website copy. If you're selling products, Squarespace makes checkout seamless for your customers with simple but powerful payment methods. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code EMMA. What do you think about going cold turkey on something? Like, for example, social media. How do you decide whether cold turkey makes sense? I do cold turkey with stuff all the time. I know. And you kind of have to. Like, I don't, I, don't yeah. do, I don't do moderation well. And I don't think I, – I shouldn't say that. It's not like I'm abusing everything that I yeah. use or do. But keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Simple – usually means instead of like titrating off of social media or saying, well, instead of using it for 30 minutes in the morning, I'm mm -hmm. going to use it for 10 minutes in the morning. Mm -hmm. What in God's name makes you think that you could possibly do that? You are so outgunned. You are mm -hmm. so outfunded. You are so outresearched. These platforms are not going to lose. Mm -hmm. Like you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. Like mm -hmm. It's not going to work. It's going to be very challenging to make work at the very least. It's mm -hmm. like do the easy thing first. And the easy thing is, is cold turkey in my opinion. Yeah. Do the simple thing first. Yeah. There's another exercise. Uh, so I had a, a TED talk a handful of years ago on this topic called fear setting. Mm-hmm. Right, where you're just as you would with goals, right? To have a goal that you have some chance of accomplishing, mm -hmm. you can do the same thing with your fears. So if you're like, oh, I can't do this, 
No, but, but no, if I do that, then I'll become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. If I do this, then people will forget about me. If I do this, then if I don't do that, et cetera, et cetera. You need to take those cloudy, nebulous fears and mm-hmm. put them on paper in some structured way. And I'll just tell people how to do it. Go old school. Piece of paper, pen, and you're going to have three or four columns. And uh, the first column is like all the things that could go, could go wrong. Yep. At the very top, it's like what you're considering doing or not doing. Yep. Stopping social media for two weeks. All right. Mm-hmm. Write down all the things that could go wrong and get as specific as possible. In the second column, you write down what you could do to minimize, like to reduce the likelihood of each of those things happening. Okay. And then in the last column, you just write down what you could do to recover, even temporarily, mm-hmm. if that thing happens. Like how could you reverse the damage or minimize the damage? Yep. That's page one. Page two is the cost of inaction. You're like, okay, if if I don't do this thing mm-hmm. and I telescope out like one, three, five years, what does my life look like? Mm-hmm. You're making explicit something that is implicit. That yeah. if you choose not to do this thing, you are making a choice in another direction. What mm-hmm. is What are the costs associated and the risks associated with that? And I would say one time out of 10, you're like, you know what? That is risky. I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, you're like, this is fine. I am risking like a three out of 10 temporary setback that I could reverse for like a nine out of 10 durable benefit. Mm-hmm. Obvious. Like the choice is obvious. What happens though mm-hmm. when your intuition or or so you think, see, that's the thing about intuition is that you don't know what it is. It's so hard to know when you get a feeling, is this intuition? Is this anxiety? Is this delusion you know like what is this yeah how does one balance their intuition with being sort of analytical and rational in a way can you give any examples of where intuition has really served you pointed you in the right direction and maybe an example of where it didn't serve you right where maybe intuition because sometimes intuition is used as a guise yeah for like justifying doing what you want to do or what is comfortable See, that's the truth. That's the truth. Because when I think about it, anytime I've used intuition and it's steered me in the wrong direction, friends, boyfriends, that's most of the time. Yeah. I knew deep down it wasn't my intuition, but I convinced myself that it was. Whereas like, I'd say intuition serving me right has been more career wise, you know, like being like, okay, you know what? Working with this, with this company doesn't feel right. And I don't yeah. know why, because mm-hmm. on paper it looks good, but to me it look it feels bad. Okay. So that's a great example. Yeah. And so here are my thoughts because the intuition, <laughs> especially we're sitting here in LA, right? Oh. <laughs> intuition comes up a lot. Yes. <laughs> At every bar. Yeah. yeah Tonight's yeah. it's Friday tonight. Yeah. We're all going to hear it. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of intuition chat tonight. Yeah. So a few things I would say. <clears throat> First, if you rely on what you would call intuition a lot, mm-hmm. practice using some frameworks, right? And this is this is sort of just a meta comment, and then I'll come into the specifics. If, on the other hand, you're very head-centric, as I have been for most of my life, I would mm-hmm. say, then practice tuning into what you might call your intuition, like your body feel, right? Like if you're used to constantly thinking in terms of frameworks and pro and con lists and this and the other thing. How do you feel, right? Like with this company, with this person, when you're on the phone, are you constricted? When you get off, are you drained? Are you checking the time because you want to get off the call? Like pay attention to that stuff. Not, not as much the content. Mm-hmm. Cause content doesn't matter if you feel like your system is giving you a yellow or a red. Yeah. And then I would say intuition to me is most interesting when it contradicts what you've arrived at in your head. That's when Completely agree. that's when I pay attention. Right? When I'm like, God, like all my, you know, these friends or these advisors are telling me to do this thing on paper, like, oh, this looks great. And there's part of me that's just like, uh Yep. I would wait. Mm, yes. That doesn't feel good. Yeah. That should be, and I've become, I think, very good at this. That's an automatic no. Yeah. It's like there's something in this pre-language evolved sensing that is telling me fuck no yeah. and when i have overridden that it's never worked out there's always some problem later i'm like damn it i knew it 
It's this, the worst. It's you know, the he worst did this feeling. deal, and uh, you can't do a good deal with a bad person or an untrustworthy worthy person. Yep. So I find intuition most valuable when it is actually subverting what you think you want. Absolutely. But it's always such an unsettling feeling. Like I had that about about college for me. Yeah. I was like, this is just not right. Yeah. Like this is not right. I can't do it right now. And I got so depressed because I was like, this is my dream is to go to a good college for you know what reason I hadn't asked myself why. That's yeah. for sure. Um and then my body rejected it. Yeah, I went into full depressive episode and then I knew like this is just wrong. Speaking of that, we we are both depressive people. Okay. Um how has that impacted I don't know, everyone's different. I like I you mentioned earlier that the the more wise that you get, the easier it is to sort of get through those moments and not fully crumble under them. But well, there's a bit more to that story. So depression runs in my family, manic depression as well. I don't have the manic episodes. And I'd say historically I've had, it's, it's it's really hard to pin down a number, but I would say four to six extended depressive episodes a year on average since I was adolescent. Per year? Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they could last anywhere from, let's say, two weeks to like, two months, right? There have been years when it's basically been mostly depressive episodes. Mm. Since 2012, 2013, that frequency is probably down to like one every two years. Wow. And they're typically pretty short. They're typically one to two weeks. And I would attribute that to a few things. And, I, and to really provide, I guess, a harrowing example of how bad that can be. I mean, in college, I had a date on the calendar to kill myself yeah. and came very, very close and through a host of very lucky coincidences, ended up getting snapped out of it because my mom called me because I had reserved this book at the library. I was taking a year off of school. It was related to suicide. The reminder on a postcard got sent home to my parents' house. I forgot to change the mailing address. And uh, she got it, freaked out, called me. And that sort of snapped me out of my own self-imposed mm. delusion in a way because you, you put on these very dark glasses when you're in those states so you can. Oh, I know. Where it seems very personal. You're the only person. You're uniquely flawed. Nobody else has this problem. And objectively, you realize, at least in my case, like your, your life is pretty good, so I'm fucked because this is never going to get better. And it's permanent, therefore, X, which is often some type of final exit. And... Mm -hmm. If that had happened now, all digital notifications, I wouldn't be here. Mm. Right. I got it all planned out. I had the whole thing figured out. And that didn't happen, thankfully. And then I would say the some of the contributing elements that have helped are different therapeutic modalities, like, mm -hmm. for instance, IFS, Internal Family Systems, mm -hmm. created by a guy named Richard Schwartz. What is that? So Internal Family Systems is a therapy technique that as its basis uses a type of role playing that allows you to interact with different parts of yourself. Interesting. So you might have defenders who are trying to protect you in certain ways by provoking certain behaviors or beliefs. And uh, they have names for these different parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. And the, if people want to hear an example, I interviewed Dick Schwartz on uh, on the Tim Ferriss show, mm -hmm. and I was a little hesitant to do this, so we agreed that I might not publish it, but it's a live session. Like, he takes me through it. And it's a structured way of having you interact with these parts, have conversations with them, identify when they came up, like how old are they, what, how, what age are you when this kind of player entered the stage. And I've seen tremendous effects from IFS by itself. Then you can layer in other tools that are sometimes very advantageous. In the case of IFS, IFS has been adapted in part to a protocol used with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So post-traumatic stress disorder, in this case treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, 
where uh, at least with the phase two trials, I think the average was something like 16.8 years or 17 years of diagnosis, which meant these patients had not found a solution to address their PTSD symptoms for an average of, let's call it 17 years. Mm -hmm. And they do two or three sessions with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. The IFS parts work. Parts work is another term you'll sometimes hear. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but they're not that much off. It's something like 58% or 60% were asymptomatic or they no longer met the criteria for PTSD after mm -hmm. two or three sessions mm -hmm. plus integration work and prep. And at the, I want to say six or 12 month follow-up point, that number had gone up to mm -hmm. something like 68%, which is very rare in mm -hmm. psychiatry. So the, for me personally, also psychedelic assist therapies have been a critical component. They're not a panacea. There are risks, but I, I can honestly say that in combination with good therapists and supervision that I think these things have have not just saved my life, but allow me to re-envision and re-author the beliefs that govern my life. And that's mm -hmm. a big deal. Mm -hmm. Certainly a big deal for me. I think people are too cavalier with these compounds now yeah right like you can you can't walk down the street in la without like somebody offering you a <laughs> matcha latte with you know magic mushrooms in yeah, it or something yeah and seriously and they're like oh you know i'm really healthy now i no longer drink i just use ketamine five nights a week yeah. and you're like well time out time out oh my god I that's don't... everyone <clears throat> i'm gonna see in like eight hours tonight yeah. oh yeah it's friday yeah. yeah so i i do think that people are taking these things in ways that are going to be very problematic later yeah but in the right circumstances with the right supervision, I think these tools are are incredibly powerful for if you look at, say, the researcher of someone like Gould Dolan, this uh, incredible researcher who I think is currently at Hopkins. And her belief is, uh, and she's testing this as a hypothesis, of course, is that psychedelics, some psychedelics reopen critical windows mm -hmm. where you can, you can effectively, and I'm, I'm, these are my words, not hers, but recontextualize experiences. This is certainly how a lot of subjects would explain the PTSD and MDMA, where mm -hmm. they can revisit this traumatic experience, whether it's war, sexual abuse, whatever mm -hmm. it might be and recontextualize it as an adult mm -hmm. so that it in a way kind of overwrites the disabling stories. Yeah. And that's hard to measure. So a lot of scientists are looking for mechanistic ways to explain these changes, but it's very difficult to do. The content from my perspective matters a lot because you look at the durability for most psychiatric medications that may be used for say maintenance suppression of mm -hmm. symptoms or addressing any number of things like depression you take these drugs and they're three to five times a week or every day mm -hmm. and if you get off of them you have to be very careful because mm -hmm. they're withdrawal symptoms and there are lots of contraindications uh, and these i should say these conventional frontline drugs are really critical and very effective for a lot of people yeah but they also don't work for a lot of people yep and when you say take someone through a trial where they have one or two high-dose psilocybin experiences for, say, treatment-resistant depression or major depressive disorder, and they report 12 months later that they have not had any return of symptoms, you can't explain that by the presence of the drug because the drug, the half-life of psilocybin is so short. Yep. Psilocybin being what is considered the active sort of constituent element in mm -hmm. magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms of different types. What I find so deeply interesting about psychedelics is that, and I'm going to borrow from a very famous psychotherapist named Stanislav Grof, and I'm paraphrasing here, mm -hmm. but it's close enough, that what the telescope did for astronomy and what the microscope did for biology, psychedelics will do for the mind. In terms of, I think, probably overturning or at least augmenting very longstanding beliefs about the brain mm -hmm. and mind, uh, Many of the effects we're seeing are just so far outside of the normal purview of psychiatry mm -hmm. uh, that it's hard for me to 
offhand pick something I find more interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, because our conception, our beliefs and conception of reality are, if we're talking about base layers, right? It's like, that's layer one. Mm -hmm. And everything else is built on that. So if you start to, if you can learn more about that, and you, if you can use these not just to help individual people in clinical trials, but also to get a better understanding of how we create reality, because let's not be... Uh, let's not make any mistake. Like we are constantly creating reality as we go. There's a book called The Case Against Reality by a scientist named Donald Hoffman, which which I think makes this very compelling. But like if I were a mantis shrimp or a mm -hmm. sparrow, mm -hmm. this room would not look the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly. So as we learn more about sort of the user interface as we experience it, I think I think we'll have some very, very compelling breakthroughs yeah. in terms of uh, not just treating psychiatric conditions or what we might consider dysfunctions, but also to help with broader mental flourishing. Totally. So I think I think that's that's what we're seeing with psychedelics right now. So that's the long story long, I suppose. To end it off, mm -hmm. what's your piece of advice for the listener? It could be something broad, it could be something niche. In random, you could go full indie with this piece of advice. Like, hit it however you want. Yeah, the 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 piece that comes to mind is not from me. It's actually something I heard first from someone named B.J. Miller. So the Dr. B.J. Miller is a, he's a physician who has done a lot of work in hospice care. He's helped thousands of people to die, mm -hmm. or he's shepherded them through that experience. And uh, he also... Um, was the victim of a terrible accident when he was in college. He was electrocuted, lost three of his limbs, I want to say. And <sighs> nonetheless has an incredible sense of humor, very smart guy. Mm -hmm. And I asked him what he would put on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, and his answer was, don't believe everything that you think. Mm -hmm. And... I asked him where he got that, and he said, I think it was a bumper sticker in Berkeley. <laughs> so that's okay. That's so That's real. okay, but but don't believe everything that you think. Yeah. A lot of what we think has not been stress tested. A lot of what we think, the things we take to be our beliefs, mm -hmm. are not our beliefs. Mm -hmm. They're our parents' beliefs or expectations mm -hmm. or the product of difficult experiences or maybe fantastic experiences that have distorted things and those things have not been re-examined. Yeah. And there are just, it's a gold mine waiting for you. I love that. So don't believe everything that you think. Amen. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Such a pleasure. Likewise. <laughs>